Hello, everybody. It's great to gather with you and be reminded of the truths of God, the hope of God. My name is Amy Foster. I love being with you every week. I love studying God's Word with you, so thanks for doing this again today. We're going to talk today about the basic elements of the Christian faith. That's what John is teaching here. And, you know, generally speaking, most of the time, all the solutions to our problems are found in the basics, aren't they? Just the basic elements. As I considered that, I thought of an easy example in my life, weight management, weight loss. It's something I've been working on forever. I went on my first diet when I was 13 years old. It was called the Scarsdale diet, and it was pretty intense. Yeah, you remember it. Here's what I learned from Dr. Scarsdale. Grapefruit makes you hungry. <laughs> There've been lots and lots of diets since. Some worked, some didn't. But for me, there really are two basic elements of weight management. You're going to want to write this down. It's life-changing. <laughs> Eat less. Move more. That's silly. Uh, yeah, that's a silly, silly example, but you know, John is writing the basics here. And I think that, um, I think John's writing maybe with a heavy heart. He is the last living apostle. He knows his time teaching, leading, and caring for the New Testament church is drawing to a close. I think that may be why he writes so succinctly, so directly, sometimes so repetitively about the basic elements of faith in these letters. In the verses we're looking at today, it looks at first glance like John is presenting the plan of salvation. And that would make you think, oh, he's written these verses to non-believers so that they would believe that Jesus is Christ. But we have to stop and remember, no, that's not who John's writing to. He's writing to the churches in Ephesus. They're already believers. They've already put their faith in Christ. He isn't writing to convince them to believe. So why is he writing this section right here? We believe it's about 90 AD, so that means it's been roughly 60 years since Jesus walked on the earth, 60 years since this new uh, gospel reality was presented. So maybe some of the enthusiasm has worn off of it. Some of these believers are not first-generation Christians. They're second-generation. Some are even third-generation Christians. Maybe some of the, the newness has worn off of that. History tells us definite things. We know that they're losing touch with people who actually remember the time when Jesus walked. John's the last apostle. History tells us they were regularly attacked and sometimes deceived by false teaching. We know that their love was growing cold for God and it was growing cold for one another. And we know that they were growing a little soft in their commitment to the truth. And that's why they were vulnerable to these false teachings. And I just have to marvel because we've seen that before in our Bibles. We actually see it at the very beginning of our Bibles, this idea of becoming complacent with the truths and realities of God. If you'll remember the children of Israel in the Old Testament, God gives them so many mighty, miraculous experiences, culminating with miraculously taking them across the Jordan River, giving them one victory miraculously after another so that they could conquer tribes and possess the land God had promised for them. And their enthusiasm for God was at a great high, 
But we're told that by the first or the second generation, they had forgotten the mighty deeds of the Lord. And all that warm enthusiasm has waned and grown cold. They become complacent. And that just seems to be a pattern for our human nature. It's an experience we have spiritually. Complacency is something that happens in all parts of our lives, isn't it? Think about that new car that you're so excited to drive home. Well, 10 years later, when it's dinged up and has different smells in it, it's not so exciting to drive it anymore. Or the new house, the dream house. Until you have more kids and it gets really crowded, it's not a dream house anymore. And I don't know if it's safe to say this, but let's talk about that guy who wooed you so well. After a few years in the house with him, he's less woo-worthy, isn't he? That's not my guy. I just hear you talking about it. I don't think John is writing to convince anyone to believe in Jesus. I think he's writing to remind them, to remind them the basics of their faith. Jesus came to bring you eternal life, and we should never become complacent with that. John writes in a very logical argument, a logical way here, and it sounds like a legal argument, doesn't it? He talks about evidence and witnesses and testimony. He's making a very clear case here, and he's talking about things that we can observe and see. He begins with this idea of evidence, and it's there's evidence that Jesus brought eternal life, and it's already here, and we can already see it. So start reading with me 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this idea, uh, belief that Jesus is the Son of God, belief that Jesus is the Christ who came to save, that serves as the bookends. He starts and he ends with that idea, and it's the event that changed everything for all time, for all mankind. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Savior sent from God, every single one has been born of God. So as we read through this passage, I want you to pay attention to the way John repeats these big sweeping terms, everyone, all of you, everyone, whoever. He's going to use that a lot, and perhaps it's because, remember, those Gnostics were out there saying special people with special knowledge. They're the ones who get secret, special, eternal life. That may be why he's using these words here, but these big, broad, sweeping words are true. So pay attention to those as we're reading. It always begins with belief. Sometimes John uses the word belief. Other times he uses the word faith. He's communicating the same idea, and it's always the idea of continual faith. So it's not the idea of just a one-time acceptance in your brain of a fact, but it's an ongoing accepting it into your brain, moving it into your heart. It's a life and a heart that's dedicated to Jesus. It's permanent belief. It's permanent faith. And it's the kind that doesn't just rest here inside of you. It flows out of you, and it shows in your behavior and in your attitudes. So he's saying this is something that is observable, and it's visible. You are born again. 
So we know that every single person, every single one of us who's experienced this kind of faith, we have a new identity. That's what he's saying right here. You're now born of God. You have entered a spiritual kingdom. It exists right now. You're in it. It will be fully uh, visible in its ultimate state in the future, but you're in it right now because you've been born of God. Jesus was the very first one to use this language, born of God or born again, when someone asked him, how can we have eternal life? And he answers in John 3, 3, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So before we had experienced belief in Jesus as the Savior and the Christ, we weren't born of God, we were born of the flesh. We were of the world, we were separated from God. And the best description you can see of this, it's in your, on your verse sheet, it's found in Ephesians 2. This is born of the flesh. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. But belief in Jesus changes all of that. We're no longer children of wrath. We've been reborn as children of God. It's all the work and energy of God. I want you to listen to how it's described in the next verses in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So that's the born again life. And it's an idea, it's a picture really of God taking our dark and alienated and ruined heart and totally turning it into something new, giving it a new identity with new desires and new goals and new purposes, all because we believed in the work of Jesus. So he says this is evidence. It's like he's presenting exhibit one in the courtroom. You're a new person with a new identity, and that's because you have eternal life. And the next bit of evidence he presents is now you have new affections. All of you have new affections. You love God in response to his great mercy and his great love towards you. And you love whoever has been born of God. Big sweeping word. Really? Everybody? We love them all? That was convicting. One of my guys likes to say, well, God commands us to love everybody in the church, but he doesn't command us to like them. <laughs> I think what he means is we don't have to wait for the sentimental feeling. We don't have to wait for that bubbly feeling in us. God's talking about agape love here. We've talked about it for several weeks, and John's going to keep bringing it up. Agape love doesn't mean a gushy, emotional feeling. Agape love is an active love that does what is best for others. It's the same way God loved us. He did what was best for us. So we are told we are siblings in the family of God, and his is a family of love. Now, maybe you grew up with siblings. I did. I actually raised a few siblings. And I think it's curious that God describes us this way. Sibling life begins as immature children. And we all know immature children don't always love each other that well. They don't always even enjoy one another. In their childishness, they will compete for the same attention, time, and toys. 
In their immaturity, they will be irritated, demanding, sometimes selfish. All right, do you find it interesting or perhaps a little uh, convicting that God describes us as siblings and he says, love each other? Love each other, little siblings, because in our immaturity, we don't always love well, do we? Now, I raised three siblings, three boys. We had a lot of rules in our house, but two big ones were no physical fighting and love your brother. Love your brother over and over and over again. There was one fight in their childhood, one big fight that lives on in our family history. There was a a ball field at our school, and all the boys would gather there after school and informally play some ball games. My youngest son always joined his older brothers on the field. Most of the time, they resented his presence. They considered him a pesky little brother, and they really just wanted him to go away. But one day, um, my youngest was out there with his brothers, and our school had a ball field. It also had a notorious bully, as many schools do. And on this day, the bully set his sights on my youngest, who was five years younger, quite a bit smaller. And the bullying started with taunting and ridiculing and harassing. But when the verbal taunting became physical, one of my older boys began to feel some agape love stirring. And he did what he thought was right, and I'm quoting my boys here, he unloaded and took that bully down. (laughs) This is one of our famous family history stories. So as they pile into my minivan and I'm hearing all the details, I'm presented with a parenting dilemma. Do I punish for fighting, or do I affirm for standing up and doing what was right for your little brother? And as I'm driving home, all I can think is one thing. Isn't this agape love? You might not enjoy your little brother, but in the moment when you need to do right by him, you will. You'll take care of him simply because he's your brother. And I think that's a great picture for us. God took care of us. He did what was best for us. We go back to that reality, and it stirs up our affection for him, and that is what moves us to loving acts for our brothers and sisters. We don't necessarily love them for their ability or their personality or their popularity. We love them for their paternity. We love them because they're gods. So if you ever struggle with loving our brothers and sisters, here's what we do. We go back to God's love for us. We abide in God's love and we let that affection grow in our heart and then we let that affection flow out for others. One writer says, the hallmark of Christian life is Christian love. It's love that honors and benefits and seeks the good of the others. And we know, because John says it over and over again, it's the primary way we are recognized in the world. It's how God wants us to be recognized in the world. So we think about this, God is entirely loving, God is love, but God is also unseen, So when God wants to make himself seen in the world, he does something loving. He sends a savior. And then he asks us to do the same thing. If you want to make me seen in the world, I want you to do something loving. It's how we make the invisible God seen. John 13, 34, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So a sign of our love for God is also obedience to God's commands. And actually, you're gonna, you see love and obedience together all the time in John's writing, and it's because our love for God and others can be completely reduced to obedience to God's commands. 
Because think about God's commands. All of them are about loving and honoring God or loving and honoring others. So if we want to love, we have to stick with all that God has commanded us. And John says here, commandment keeping, keep the commandments. And that's a reminder to us this is a habitual process. It's a day after day, week after week, month after month kind of thing. It's implied that we will focus on and remain committed to honoring God and keeping his commandments all the time. So what we see here is love and obedience. Those are the new affections in us. They are signs, they're visible that we've been born of God, but they are also ongoing responsibilities as we live a life in fellowship with God. Fortunately, we can fulfill the responsibilities God has given us because as a born-again person, he has also given us new ability. John really presents new ability here kind of as his third exhibit, and you see it when he uses the words, commandment keeping is not burdensome. And what he doesn't say is commandment keeping is easy. That's not here. It's not burdensome, meaning it isn't oppressive and it isn't crushing. It's not a terrible weight that's impossible for you to bear. And as I read that the first time, I was reminded of Jesus' scathing rebuke to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, because they had created so many complicated rules and laws that the people couldn't possibly keep. And Jesus described it as if they had bundled up all these heavy laws, strapped them together, and tied them to people's backs, weighing them down. And that's not the way of Jesus. His commandments aren't burdensome for one reason. You have a new ability. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That means you're victorious over the world system that is always opposing God. That's the system you used to walk in and live in and be enslaved to, but Jesus overcame that system. The word overcomer is a fabulous word. It's repeated several times here. It literally means to have conquering power. You have conquering power. And it's an idea of overthrowing an enemy in a very visible way so that all can see the victory. Jesus describes himself as the overcomer first in John 16, 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the same word there. We know Jesus overcame sin's penalty. He overcame spiritual death and hell for all time. And because we are united to Jesus, we are united to his victory, and we are united to his overcoming power. It's a remarkable thought here. We've got this world system of Satan that wants to blind you to God's loving grace. It wants to blind you to Jesus' sacrificial work on your behalf. But Jesus has already overcome that. That's why your eyes are open and you can see. And now that overcoming power gives you the ability to resist sin's pull and sin's temptation in your life. So he's describing here a life that is presently victorious and eternally victorious simply because it's linked to Jesus and it's linked to Jesus' power. He's reminding us we've been set free from sin's penalty in the future and we've been set free from sin's power in the present. You're an overcomer right now. I think at this point I'm imagining John kind of in a courtroom scene and he's presented all this evidence that you have received eternal life. It's almost like he'd raise his hands and say, believers, look around. 
See all this evidence. See it among you. You've believed in Jesus, and now you feel all his love inside you. You've believed in Jesus, and now you've got some love flowing out of you. You've believed in him, and now you're choosing obedience, and you're resisting sin. This can only be explained because one thing is true. Jesus came to bring you eternal life. That's a basic element of faith. You have new life today because of Jesus. I think he would stand in the middle of that room and say, hey, don't get cold and complacent. Warm up. Warm up in your love. Warm up in your love-prompted obedience. Don't be passive, but pay attention habitually day after day and exert a little bit of sustained energy. So if he's talking here about love and obedience, I think our response to that is pay attention to how we love. Is our love patient, kind, long-suffering, and hopeful? Is our love free of envy, boasting, arrogance, selfishness? Is it like that always? Is it like that to everyone, especially everyone in the family of God? Does it pursue over and over and over again? Because that's how God loved you. That's how God is revealed in the world today also. So God has given us, as part of our new nature, a pattern to follow. He loved in a way that planned and initiated and acted. Jesus loved in a way that sacrificed and served. That is our pattern to follow, and he's given us the power that we need to be able to accomplish that. He's given us Jesus' overcomer power. But we have to do our part and be diligent about that. And how is our obedience? You know, we used to teach our children obedience is cheerful, immediate, and even when no one is watching. That's a good description for all of us because that's a description of obedience that's not performance-based, even when no one's watching, and cheerful. That's obedience that's love-prompted. Love-prompted. We must be habitually focused on what God commands, why God commands it, what God wants for us, how much God loves us if we want our activity and our behavior to flow along that direction. And the promise that we have is God doesn't ask anything that's too oppressive or burdensome. There's no commandment of God that's impossible for a child of God to perform, not a single one. But it will require some attention and sustained effort. So that's the evidence that John has presented that he says, you can see this among you. Jesus has brought eternal life. Next, he brings some witnesses or some testimony. I want you to read with me beginning in verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Okay, that's kind of tricky language here. John is writing about water and blood as if they are people in a witness stand giving testimony. So if you're an English teacher, that's personification there. That's what he's doing. He's describing them like they're people. Now, you spent some time on this in your study questions. Most likely, when he says the water testifies, that's a reference to Jesus' baptism, which marked the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so I want you to, in your mind, go back and remember what happened at Jesus' baptism. What was being testified there to Jesus willingly submitted in obedience to the work God had him to do. And in his submission, the Spirit of God descended from heaven on Jesus like a dove, anointing him for the work that God had for him to do. 
And then majestically, we hear the voice of God from heaven. You're my son. I'm pleased with you. Commissioning Jesus for the work God had for him to do. Jesus' baptism was a historical event witnessed by many people, recorded by many people, and it was an event that testified to the reality God is sending a savior into the world to save his people. Next, we've got blood serving as a witness here. We believe that's a reference to Jesus' death, which terminated essentially his earthly work. All that happened at his death is testimony that he was sent by God to save the world. Remember what happened? You read about this. The earth trembled and it went dark in the middle of the day. The unbelieving Gentile guards watched it all and they were moved to say, surely this is the son of God. And that barrier that had hung in the temple, separating people from the holy presence of God, miraculously that barrier is ripped in two. So what happened at Jesus' death is the created world recognized Christ. The unbelieving world, the unbelieving Roman guard, the hardened criminal on a cross beside him, they recognized Christ. The barrier to God's presence that had always been in place is now removed, all because a sacrifice was being made that was acceptable. He was the Savior who was making a way for us to step into fellowship with God without barriers. And then John says, and the Spirit testifies as well. That was a little tricky. It stumped me a bit. I spent some time studying that. Um, most believe that this is a reference to the message of the prophets of God, the men who spoke God's word, preparing the world for the work that God was doing. Mostly they were preparing for the world for the Savior who would come someday. So one example of that I want to share with you was the prophet Isaiah almost 500 years before. Isaiah was speaking these words to prepare the world. A virgin shall bear a son, and he will be despised and rejected by men. He will be pierced and crushed for our sins, and by his wounds we will be healed. Those words came so early to warn us and to get our hearts ready for a Savior. You know, we have a New Testament prophet, too. We have John the Baptist. Now, you may remember he was Jesus' cousin, but as Jesus approached the banks of the Jordan River for baptism, John doesn't look up and say, Cousin Jesus, come and be baptized. Because a prophet doesn't speak his own words. A prophet speaks God's words. And instead of cousin Jesus, John the Baptist said, Lamb of God. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God sent the prophets to testify that a Savior was coming. And then John tells us all three agree. Their testimony all agrees. So at the time this was written, when you said all three witnesses have agreeing testimony, they would immediately think of their legal system where the testimony of two or three witnesses in agreement would be accepted as legal truth. Two people saying the same thing, accept it as truth. Well, now we've got three witnesses here all testifying to the same thing. There's been a real event in history. It's happened at a real specific time in history. It's accomplishing a specific foretold purpose of God. A savior came to bring eternal life. Next, John presents the star witness. This is kind of the most dramatic moment in this scene. And his star witness is God himself giving his own testimony. You can read this in verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So he begins saying, this is the testimony of God in verse 9, but he's actually referring back to the testimony of the blood, the water, and the spirit here. He's letting us know these things don't speak for themselves. They speak for God. It was God's message all along. And then he reminds the audience, hey, you accept sworn statements of witnesses in your courtrooms. You you accept that as truth. So consider how you would respond to the sworn statement, the testimony of God. He's more authoritative than any man in your witness stand. And then almost like a little sidebar, he includes, there's one more testimony. It's the one that's inside you. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever, there's that big sweeping word again. Every single person who believes that Jesus is the Christ They have the testimony of truth. It becomes internalized in their spirit, in their heart. We know God's spirit takes up residence in us and confirms it. Internally, we get this message, it's true, you're his, you're a child of God. Romans describes it, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's why we know we're God's. That's why we can go to him with confidence in prayer and call him Father. That's why we can go to him in confession and not be terrified and afraid because his spirit is in us confirming that we have eternal life and a relationship with him. But there's no middle ground with John because there's no middle ground with God. Whoever doesn't believe all this, they're blaspheming God and calling him a liar. A liar is one who makes a false claim. John has called people liar in the previous chapters, and every time it makes us cringe, doesn't it? We don't like having someone called a liar. How we should cringe at the thought of someone's action or belief or decision that's essentially calling God a liar. I think for John, this is a message or a shot across the bow to the false teachers of the day. I think it's also a warning to the weak believer who's listening to false things and being easily swayed, and I think it's a message for us as well, and the message is wise up. Wise up. Any rejection of Jesus as the only source of eternal life is a rejection of God. Any message that denies some of God's testimony destroys all of God's testimony and discredits God. It blasphemes God. So believer, you need to know God's testimony, and you need to reject any single thing that detracts from it. John has a hope for the church in Ephesus here, and the hope is maturity, not childishness. Look at Ephesians 4.14. So we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, carried about by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children have to wise up. So he's saying here is God's testimony. If you don't listen to it, you're blaspheming God and calling him a liar. Next, he reveals God's testimony. 
Here's the moment everybody's been waiting for. God is before us, and he says, I gave you eternal life. I gave it to you. This life is in my son. So let's take a look at those words. God gave it. He gave it. For all who've believed, we've been born again, and God's giving is complete. He isn't holding it back for a little while. He isn't doling it out in meager little portions as he thinks we can handle it or deserve it. God gave it. Because God gave it, you are spiritually alive if you believe in Jesus. Because God gave it, you have eternal companionship with God because he gave it. That's the abundant life that Jesus described. He said he came to give it to you. And ladies, you don't wait for the moment when you draw your last breath to receive this eternal life. You have it now. And who did he give it to? Whoever has the Son. All of us. That means it's yours completely the moment you believe. It's yours at your weakest, most immature, most uninformed moment. It's yours at your feeblest and your wimpiest and your most sinful moment. It's yours at your wisest, most God-dependent, most God-honoring moment. Christ is yours. Eternal life is yours because God gave it. Eternal life saves us from many terrible things, and it saves us for wonderful things. It saves us from the wrath of God, the dominion of sin, the power of death, the mastery by the world, by the, world the flesh, the devil that had consumed us. It saves us from the fears and insecurities that a sinful life creates, and it saves us from all the life-draining soul-quenching, relationship-destroying habits that were associated with our old life. We have been saved from all of those things, and we have been saved for some wonderful things. We've been saved to live in love with God, now and forever. And we've been saved to live lives of love toward our brothers and sisters, now and forever. Because guess what? They're all going with us into eternity, so we need to start loving them now. Complacency was alive and well at the church in Ephesus, and it continued. We know this because we read about them again in Revelation chapter 2. They are commended. They'd learned how to identify false prophets and test them. They'd learned how to work and toil hard. But listen to what Revelation 2.4 says about them. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Their love grew cold. So since we know complacency is a common condition of man, how can we push back against it? And for me, I think it means we grow up. We grow up. A life of fellowship with God has benefits. They're immense. But a life of fellowship with God also has responsibilities. And those responsibilities are love, obedience, and continued faith. Grow up, little children. Now, I've spent a good bit of time around teenagers. Maybe you have too. If you haven't, perhaps you recall you were a teenager once. Here's the thing about teenagers. They want to enjoy all the benefits of adulthood without embracing the responsibility, without carrying the responsibility. Think about this. They want to drive your car, but they want you to pay for the gas and the insurance, right? They want the freedom of college life and having all that independence, but they want you to pay the tuition bill and not look at their grades, right? 
<laughs> they want to make all the decisions because it's their life, but if they're costly consequences, they want you stepping in and bailing them out. A teen will only grow up when they assume the responsibilities that go with all of those rights. I think John would say, children, you have all the benefits of new life. You need to carry some of the responsibility. Grow up, live the life God has given you. He's given you a pattern to follow. It's Jesus' love and obedience. He's given you a power source to draw from. It's the Holy Spirit residing in you. And he's given you a promise that nothing he asks you to do is too burdensome for you. But you are prone to complacency. So we have to consider what growing up looks like in our life today. I've considered what it looks like for me. I have some thoughts on this. The truth is, I have been born of God for a very long time. I put my faith in Jesus when I was four or five years old. Quite a few years have passed since then. Here's what complacency looks like in my life. Because I've lived for so long with the reality that my sins are forgiven, I forget both how glorious that is and how costly it was. Because I've lived so long with God's overcoming power working in me, because he's helped rescue me, because he's helped protect me and keep me away from some of the damaging sins of the world, I start thinking it's my power. I start thinking I'm pretty self-controlled and strong. Maybe I even start relying on my power more and less on his. Because God has done some growing and maturing work in me, I'm inclined to find my identity in my own successes and failures instead of the identity that God has given me. You are a child of God. And most heartbreakingly, because I have been so abundantly loved by God for so long, just like an indulged, spoiled child, Sometimes I think I deserve it. Sometimes I think I've earned it. So part of my growing up and pushing against complacency is always look back. Look back to the magnitude of God's love that began pursuing me and pursuing you before the beginning of time when he made a plan to send a savior. His love that pursued me and made a plan from the earliest days by sending words to the prophets that would help me recognize my Christ. Look back to the love of God that gave his only son. Look back to the love of God in Christ that sacrificed everything to save me. And look back to the love of God that condescended to put a Holy Spirit in my sinful soul. And he put it there for my good, to assure me every day that I'm his, and also to give me victorious overcomer power so I could do what he wants. When I look back to the basics, it stirs my affection for God. It helps me grow up and live today like all these promises are true. So I don't want to be a baby Christian who loves and obeys through gritted teeth without really liking people. And I want to be a teenage Christian who enjoys all the benefits but embraces none of the responsibility. Poor Christian who never stops looking back so that every day now and every day in the future, I can love and obey and make my invisible God visible in the world. Jesus came to bring eternal life. When we grow up, we take hold of that eternal life and we live like it's true. I want to close with Paul's words written to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith, 
take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The good confession is this, Jesus came to bring you eternal life. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us, that it began with your love and your mercy and your grace, and we thank you that you sent Jesus, and we thank you that the eternal life you've promised we possess fully now, Lord. So let it sink into our hearts and into our minds. Let it affect the way we live and the way we love and the way we serve, and let us just live with joy a life of love that shows you to the world. That is our hope, Lord. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.